0: I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. I remember the first time I showed up for one of my own therapy sessions just after I had learned the micro skill paraphrasing. You know, that most basic of active listening skills where you repeat what the other person has just said in your own words to demonstrate that you were listening and that you understand that they make you practice on your grad school classmates to get used to the feeling of it before you have to sit in the makeshift office of your practicum clinic and try to sound legit while you do it with your first actual clients. This was 11 or 12 years ago or thereabouts, and I had been in this particular therapist's office probably over a hundred times by then. That's still my longest therapeutic relationship on the client side to date. I sat on the aggressively neutral beige couch in the same spot I sat in every time, looking up at the same framed photo of vining pink flowers against the door of a picturesque French chateau on the wall across from my therapist and his ergonomic office chair, expecting to have some version of the same session we always had, given our well-established relationship dynamic by that point. I don't remember what it was I had brought into session to talk about that day, but I do remember hearing my therapist launch into a paraphrase of what I had just said, and instead of being drawn into our usual back and forth... I was totally preoccupied by my sudden awareness of the technique. I now knew he was using with the emotional incongruence of my newfound knowledge. I struggled to keep a straight face and after a moment burst into laughter. After explaining to my therapist, my unexpected display of levity at his usual demeanor, we shared a laugh and then moved on with our session. But it was that moment where my experience of therapy as a client was forever changed. It was that moment where I saw behind the curtain, where I started to understand something about what I was seeing and experiencing in a more specific way. Another example. Years later, I was in couples therapy with a partner and we were seeing an EFT trained therapist. That's emotionally focused therapy for couples. And I happened to have read the EFT manual, though I've never practiced that modality and don't particularly recommend it for a number of reasons. In EFT, clinicians are directed to use body language as an intervention, and one particular intervention is moving physically closer to the client in particular kinds of emotionally charged moments in order to both demonstrate empathic attunement and also to highlight the significance and intensity of the emotion being expressed. So. I go in knowing this, and in this couple session, there was this moment where I clocked the therapist moving physically closer to me in a moment just like good old Sue Johnson describes in the book, and it fell so flat. I was so off-put, and we didn't go back. You could argue that the therapist in this case deployed that intervention in a bit of a clumsy or affected way, that it didn't come off as very genuine anyway, and that's why it was off-putting to me, which I think very well may have been the case there, but it certainly didn't contribute to a sense of authentic attunement that I knew for sure that was an intervention from the manual, right? I'm dating myself here, but Jerry Seinfeld has this bit. Well, I'll just play it for you. Even if you've had a relationship with someone, or let's say, especially if you've had a relationship with someone and you try and become friends afterwards, it's very difficult, isn't this? It's hard because you know each other so well, you know? You know all each other's tricks. It's like two magicians trying to entertain each other. You know, and then one goes, look, a rabbit. The other one goes, so? I believe that's your card. why don't we just saw each other in half and call it a night? Okay. I think that doing therapy with therapists, being in therapy as a therapist, it's kind of like that. Even if we don't know each other individually, there is so much that we do know about each other in the context of the therapeutic relationship. We know like we really know, know that therapists don't have all the answers to people's problems. We know that therapists have significant disagreements about how people's problems should be approached. We know that sometimes therapists paraphrase just because they don't know what else to say right then. We know that sometimes therapists do in fact get bored in session. We know that therapists don't actually hate last minute cancellations as long as they're charging their cancellation fee. And sidebar, if you're habitually not charging your cancellation fee for the love of God, please stop self-sabotaging and start charging it. We know how hard it can sometimes be as a therapist to get critical feedback from a client. We know that it's not always easy to tell which days this work will be demoralizing and draining and which days it will be rewarding and enlivening and how tired we are at the ends of both kinds of days. And here in 2023, we know what it was like to be a therapist through the emergence of a global pandemic. We know that burnout among clinicians has reached unprecedented levels alongside unprecedented levels of demand for our services, which is a kind of seeing behind the curtain that I did not predict that decade plus ago. And I'm really just scratching the surface here. There is so much more that we know, having seen behind the curtain of this work and seeing behind it every day as we do it ourselves. There is so much that we see and interpret and understand differently when we are sitting in front of our own therapists as clients that can make being a client feel so hard in a different way than it was hard before. And at the same time, we are under the pressure to do our own work for the sake of our clients and longing for somewhere to unload the weight of other people's stuff that we are carrying, and sometimes needing to unpack some of the painful shit that probably got us into this field in the first place. On the therapist of therapist side, things are equally tricky. As Dr. Herrera astutely pointed out in our conversation in my last episode, there is no training that I'm aware of specifically in doing therapy with therapists. There is next to no acknowledgement that this is a special population with special considerations. Even if we haven't given it a lot of explicit thought, our intuition tells us something is different when a therapist client shows up for therapy with us. Therapist clients need something a little different than other clients need, often something more than other clients need, and no one prepares us for what that different thing, that something more, is. So what do we do about it? What do we do to make this better for all of us? Therapists, therapists, and therapist clients. I'm going to start on the macro level, on the level of our professional culture, changes to our professional culture we need to make in order to improve the experience of therapists in therapy and of therapists doing therapy with other therapists. The first thing we need to do is acknowledge this if not as a full-fledged specialty, at least as a special population where we need to develop specific skills and focus on specific areas of competency. Part of this is really internalizing and vocalizing the understanding that therapists need and deserve good therapy. We should not be an afterthought, both because therapists are human beings with value as individuals and our well-being matters, and because our well-being and whether we are receiving the kind of care that we need and deserve has a disproportionate impact on the well-being of others and whether they are receiving the kind of care that they need and deserve. Acknowledging therapists as a special population is part of a larger cultural shift that needs to happen. Away from seeing therapists as caregiving machines who are responsible for maintaining our own functioning via simple self-care, and towards seeing us as caregivers who ourselves need to receive skilled care from others in order to function optimally in our care of others. Knowing that we need more, saying that we need more, and demanding the more that we need is part of pushing back against the way our labor has been undervalued. The other thing that we need to change culturally on the macro level to make things better for therapists in therapy is that therapists have to stop being so fucking mean to and judgmental of each other. I know you aren't surprised to hear this from me because I say it all the time, but you may be surprised to hear it in this context. What does therapists being mean and judgmental to each other have to do with making a better therapy experience for therapist clients? Well, it's not a big jump if you think about it, right? Every mean or judgmental or self-righteous thing you or I have said publicly or semi-publicly about other therapists lives in the mind of some therapist out there when they go into their own therapy. It's not realistic to expect therapist clients to just put all this down and leave it outside when they walk through that office door. Realistically, at some point, it's much more likely that they're going to think, If other therapists judge me so harshly for not taking insurance or for using a very different intervention from them, what is this therapist sitting in front of me going to think about me when I open up to them about yelling at my partner or my excessive drinking or insert life difficulty that people tend to feel shame about here? The impacts of a general professional culture of hypercriticism and excessive vigilance about doing the right or wrong thing, being the right or wrong way as a therapist is going to show up in therapist's personal therapy. And on one level that can be good because when deftly handled by the therapist, we then have the opportunity to work out some of those impacts. But wouldn't it be good if we all had less of those impacts to work out in the first place? Now, of course, we're not going to be absolutist about this. Remember, we don't traffic in simple answers here. There are always going to be other therapists that I frankly don't like and I'm going to feel more judgmental of. And probably the best thing is that I never become those therapists therapist. That's going to be true of all of us with regards to someone. And the antidote to an overly judgmental professional culture is not to be nicey nice and uncritically accepting of every other therapist's actions and opinions. The antidote rather is to approach our disagreement with each other with respect, clarity, and a sense of investment in our collegiate relationships. And the antidote is also to attend to our inner experiences of being triggered by each other, and the experience of carrying the weight of how we feel the actions of other therapists reflect on us with curiosity, attentiveness, and restraint. Before we move on, I want to remind you that I am not always banging this drum about therapists being kinder and less judgmental and more restrained with one another because I am by nature a particularly nice and non-judgmental and restrained person. I'm not. By disposition, I tend to be relatively quick-tempered and not especially tolerant of other people's shortcomings. So this is not coming from a place of self-righteousness. I can lay no claim to that. But perhaps it's because I often have to work at non-judgment and tolerance that I have come to more consciously understand their utility. And their utility here is that when we co-create a mean and judgmental professional culture of therapists, We are contributing to the burden of shame that our colleagues carry into therapy with them as clients. A block of shame that they then have to dismantle if they are to get to the juicy parts of really being able to utilize therapy. The shame that seems to be almost ubiquitous among therapist clients. I carry it, you probably carry it, and Dr. Herrera gave voice to that last episode. So that's the macro level. That's the professional culture level. Now let's talk about the one-to-one level. On the one-to-one level, to provide the most effective therapy to our fellow therapists, we have to contend with the additional stuff that's in the room when we sit down to do therapy with another therapist, the stuff that is there alongside all the typical stuff that's there when we are working with a typical client. And to contend with it, we have to first identify it and acknowledge it. So first there's the shame, the shame I was just talking about, the shame that is imbued with the weight of all our beliefs about who a person who is a therapist is supposed to be and all the ways that we judge ourselves as not living up to those beliefs. The weight of all the negativity of our professional culture the weight of all the cultural expectations about how well people who care for others are supposed to function and how perfect we are supposed to be. And connected to that shame, overlapping with it, but not completely contained within it, is our relationship as colleagues. This is not a totally avoidable facet of the therapist-client relationship when we are working with therapist-clients. The therapist part of ourselves is not a hat that we can just walk through a door and choose to take off, despite what all the nonprofits that insist on using that hat language would have you believe. We don't stop being a therapist the minute we take up our own therapy, at least certainly not at first and not all the time. And as the therapist in the dyad, there is no escaping the reality that when a therapist is our client, we have a colleague sitting with us and in real time with high stakes, Watching us work. That awareness of being watched differently is a part of what's there with us when we have a therapist client. And when we have a therapist client that is in some way unhappy, disappointed, dissatisfied with critical of our work with them, that is going to hit a little bit differently and cut a little bit deeper than it might with a client who is not also a colleague. Another piece of this relationship between colleagues is the relevance of the client's work to their personal therapy which Dr. Herrera and I alluded to last episode. Almost everybody brings something about their work to therapy, and given the fundamentally emotionally weird nature of what we do, not to mention the vicarious trauma and the caregiver burnout that can accompany this line of work, we may need to bring our work up in therapy more than many other clients might. And yet the vulnerability of bringing our work as therapists into therapy when we are the clients is immense. To take off the mask of the good therapist archetype and discard the pretense that we are perfectly or close to perfectly conforming to that is crucial to doing substantive therapeutic work on the blocks or difficulties that come up in our professional lives. Yet to remove that mask in front of a colleague who, by the structure of the relationship we don't know all that much about, can feel at times almost unimaginably risky. The last extra thing, additional layer that is in the room when we are seeing a therapist client that I want to mention today is the therapist client's self-analysis, their preconceived understanding of themselves and their life experience that they arrive in therapy with. Yes, everyone, or at least anyone who has done any degree of self-reflection at all has this. It's not the existence of a self-analysis that differentiates therapist clients from non-therapist clients. It's the depth, complexity, and sophistication of it and the therapist client's commitment and attachment to it that differentiates us from other clients in regards to our self-analysis. I don't make an exception of myself here, by the way, I am very attached to my own self-analysis. So yes, many people analyze themselves, not everyone goes to grad school about it and carefully selects a preferred theoretical framework through which they view themselves and all their significant interpersonal experiences. So naturally making alterations to the conclusions that we have drawn based on analyzing ourselves through our preferred frameworks doesn't come easily. And yet reassessing our established conclusions about ourselves is often precisely one of the most important things we come to therapy needing. And we know this, we know that we're supposed to be receptive to our therapist's influence in this regard. So sometimes we perform receptiveness in therapy rather than allowing our therapists in the process of therapy to rattle the foundations of our self-perception. And on the therapist side, this can take more than our baseline level of shrewdness, confrontation, and skill to handle. So what do we do? What do I do, Reva? People are always asking me that. Before I get into what we do individually as therapists of therapists, I want to give voice to the fact that this is something of a tender place for me, this whole episode, really, but especially here where I'm about to talk about things I think we should do with our therapist clients, particularly because I have clients and maybe former clients who I know listen to this podcast. Hi, guys. Love ya. Yes, it's okay to bring this episode up in session. And I know I have not always knocked it out of the park with my therapist clients. I have learned these lessons about how I think therapist clients are best approached in part through trial and error. And because I believe working effectively with therapists often takes more courage, I notice the ways in which some days I really show up to work with more courage than others. That being said, through trial and error, I have learned a thing or two about a thing or two. So in the service of applying those lessons forward, here is the first, and I believe the most important thing we need to do to be therapists to therapists. Prepare ourselves to welcome and witness the full spectrum of humanity in our therapist clients. That might sound simplistic initially, but it means examining and dismantling our established convictions about the types of people therapists are and can be, the types of relationships we have, the types of behaviors we engage in, the feelings we feel, the diagnoses we may fit, We need to confront our own discomfort with the ways we ourselves and other therapists don't fit the good therapist archetype and allow the good, bad, and ugly of human existence to be present in our therapist clients, which it most certainly already is. But we need to challenge ourselves to be as fully present as possible with it. When I say welcome, what I mean is that we need to get truly curious and cultivate a feeling of genuine welcoming towards the messiness of our therapist, client's human experience, and then truly invite them, welcome them to show up in that messiness. And we can say that we're doing that all the live long day, but we prove that we're really doing it by witnessing the messiness without flinching, without looking away and without repackaging it into something neater and cleaner. And the other takeaway, the other big thing I think that we should be doing when we are seeing therapists as clients, and this is more concrete, so those of you who love concrete suggestions and don't think I give enough of them, I'm finally going to throw you a bone here. I think that with therapist clients, it is especially beneficial and potent to use immediacy. As a refresher, immediacy in therapy is when we use the here and now interactions between therapist and client to leverage the therapeutic relationship to affect therapeutic change. My impression, unfortunately, is that therapists are receiving less and less training in immediacy and less encouragement to use it as there has been a push towards so-called evidence-based practice. And that's unfortunate because immediacy is one of our most potent interventions and especially so with therapist clients, in part because the more complex the layers of relationship that exist in the therapeutic dyad, the more potential opportunities for leveraging the relationship in powerful ways, and because immediacy separates us from many of our defenses. As elegant as the analysis of myself and all of my life experiences that I bring to therapy with me may be, I can't use that analysis to weasel out of vulnerability when my therapist is confronting me with the here and now of our relationship. When we use immediacy, we're no longer relying on hoping that our same old magic tricks, pulling the rabbit out of the old hat again, is going to wow the other magician in the room. What therapy with other therapists asks of us is something that ultimately serves all our clients, something that pushes us to level up as practitioners. And that is to put down the accoutrements of our magic act and be an instrument of the real magic of therapy, the magic of the relationship. If you're enjoying A Therapist Can't Say That, please rate, review and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please don't forget to share the show with your fellow magicians. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. I love hearing your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course, you're a therapist, can't say that moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or sending me a voice note to Riva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you next time.